Yo, what is up everyone? This is the Twice Over Film Club and I'm your host Faraz. Today, along with Yusuf and Fahad, we'll be discussing 12 Angry Men. Of course, this episode has spoilers. If you haven't seen the film, check out our preview episode from last week. The tally for this film comes between a 75 and an 80. So not much of a distribution overall, but definitely has some elements which we preferred more than others. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and following us on all the social media accounts. Uh, we're also on Letterboxd, so you can always check out what is on our watch list there and our written review for each movie that we've done. Alright, let's get into the discussion. Alright, Fahad, Yusuf, let's get into 12 Angry Men. Yeah, sure. Our narrative scores didn't differ that much, right? No, so our narrative scores were very close. 75 for me, 80, 80 for you two. Um, I, I guess we all probably agree that it's a it's an engaging story, but it's not um, it's not complex in any way. So there's nothing th- there's nothing impressive about the story itself. So I, I was asking um, myself this one question: Did it hold my attention throughout? And yes, every second of it, right? And that's why I gave it um, an eighty. And but you're right; it's not complex enough where I could give it a, a score of anything higher. Yeah, pretty much. That's why I mean, I did appreciate the execution of the story. Um, it flowed very well. Like uh, like Yusuf said, it's a 90 minute movie and uh, you're engaged throughout. So it's good, but it, there just isn't enough there for for me to go higher than a, a near average score. Yeah, but I feel like when you say that, it sounds more negative than it actually is, because like, I mean, you gave it a 75, sure, but like a 75 or an 80, which is all of us like, that's pretty mm-hmm. good. I mean, that just that just means that we weren't like our minds weren't blown by the narrative. Right. But like we we enjoyed the narrative, basically. Um, and it, it we're, we're all above average here. So um, I, I did think that I enjoyed the way that they told the story backwards Um this movie, you know, just just to, to set up the, the narrative, right? Like the opening shots are, are in the courtroom and we get um, a judge giving the the jury kind of their their instructions um, of what they have to go back into the deliberation room and what they have to decide on. Um, and then after that, literally the entire movie takes place in the deliberation room, right? It does not move from that setting. We don't get to see any of the trial. And everything we learn about the trial is from them recounting what happened in the trial and, you know, almost reenacting some of it in front of us. But we do not leave the four walls of that jury deliberation room the entire time. Um, so well, they have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> What's that? Oh, <laughs> they do go to the bathroom. Um, correction. Yes. Um, but that is the, the jury deliberation bathroom. Like it's directly attached and there's no way out from there. Um, but they, like, you know, just basically they have to tell us everything that they want to tell us um, by, you know, recounting only um so i thought that was pretty uh you know it, it, it's it's probably would have been more engaging if they had a bunch of flashbacks right but like i did like how they took that as like the constant and just did everything inside inside that room yeah and w- being inside w- this one room they added to that claustrophobic element right they locked the doors for the deliberation room they had it they set up the uh the staging so they talked about how hot it was how uh, it was one of the hottest days of the year, and then it was raining. They added so many other elements where it, it feels like they're locked in. Um, yeah, the fan's not working. Everyone's sweating profusely except for one guy. <laughs> yeah, and you're locked in there with them, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's 12 guys in an oven. Another possible title for this movie. Um, they, <laughs> they, they just, yeah, they're all stuck in there, and they, you know, they just have each other to 
to shout at essentially. Uh, but I did. Did you feel that you were losing anything in terms of what happened in the trial, or even what happened um, in the events that led to the trial? Did you feel like you were missing any details by the time you got to the end? Because I think I felt like I I had it all kind of organized in my head um, just from them talking about it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they they go through the different parts of the trial. I, I don't think they go like in any specific order, but like, you know, they mentioned, oh, this was brought up by the prosecution. The defense uh, attorney didn't bring this up. And you pretty much get the entire picture of what the case was, um, like why the accused was accused of the murder um, and like who the witnesses were and um, what the evidence was. You get all of that information and you kind of get it through different perspectives as well. You get it from... When from each juror, how they how they internalized each of the pieces of evidence and how some of them were very skeptical about it. Uh, others um, were focused on like the the mannerisms or man, yeah, basically the mannerisms of the witnesses. Others were just look, thinking about the actual facts and what they heard the witnesses say and not like thinking outside the box beyond that. It, it was just a very engaging story from that point of view. Mm-hmm. But back to the question of whether or not we missed anything, right? So did we miss out on viewing, you know, at several points throughout this, uh, the, the deliberations, they were pointing out how the uh, the defendant's lawyer was somewhat incompetent. I would have wanted yeah. to see that, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, I think they, they bring in enough for that to show that, you know, it's, again, this, this is going to hit on a little bit of the themes, but how there's, you know, public defenders who maybe aren't the most motivated mm-hmm. to uh, do their best and they kind of get into why that might be and how the lawyer could just be a bad lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something, I guess, is it's, it's commonly known. I don't know if they had to go much deeper in that. What do you think, Yusuf? I think I felt about the same where, um, you know, we know that personality who's just, you know, clocking it in and there's, you know, kind of ignoring the stakes that are being affected by their their attitude. Uh, more so, I think I just liked the fact that they kept us in the the headspace of the jurors who, you know, if they show us flashbacks of the actual crime, um, even if it's like, re- like, you know, they're imagining what could have happened where this guy's innocent or what could have happened when this guy's guilty, because there's kind of those two different uh, diverging stories, right? Even if they show us those flashbacks, that's more detail than the jurors are afforded in an actual trial. They literally have to go on the words and the exhibits and and just that, right? Um, so they keep us in that same f- frame of mind um, by, you know, not allowing us to go back and relive anything that happened in the trial even, much less what happened, you know, in real life. In the, or, yeah, in the yeah. real life events, right? Um, mm. So I did appreciate that they just kind of tried to keep us on the same plane as what a juror would feel. Sure. Um, so, you know, you are the you're, you're another man in that room, basically. So I thought that was cool. Um, can we discuss real quick, like the two the two stories that were told, basically, um, you know, the, the story where this guy's innocent and the story where he's guilty, um, you know, the, the facts that they lay out for us? Sure. Yeah, um, I can go, I can do the guilty one. Uh, basically, what the case the prosecution makes is that this uh, the son kills his father by stabbing him in the chest and he does so because he was he was punched, he had been right? hit by his father earlier in the night which uh you know pushed him over the edge got him really angry 
he went and got his switchblade knife and after just after midnight he stabbed him in the chest and the witnesses that they have to corroborate this evidence is two people uh, one there's an old man that lives upstairs and he's he says that he heard um, the son yell out I'm gonna kill you and then a body hit the floor right after and then as the old man went to his apartment door he said when he opened the door he saw the son running out of the building and the other witness is the uh, woman across the street and she claims that she heard uh, a scream so she looked out the window and there's a uh, so L-line train passing by and through the windows of the L-line train at night, she saw the boy, uh, like the actual stabbing uh, happen. And um, based on those two witnesses and then the actual switchblade knife as the uh, murder weapon, that they are able to say that it was owned by the uh, by the defendant, that's the case the prosecution is making that he's actually guilty. And then mm-hmm. it kind of wraps up where, you know, Basically, he ran off, and then at some point, maybe an hour or two later, um, he he comes back home and he gets arrested immediately, right? Um, and they ask yeah, him where he and was. And the idea is that he came back to get the knife. Right. Yeah, they're suggesting he came back to to get the murder weapon. Um, he says he was at the movies and he just came back. Um, and so basically, the other story that you can tell in this, in you know, if you thought he was innocent, right? Uh, the story he tells is that you know, he got in an argument at whatever, you know, seven or eight with his father, um, which was, you know, heard by the neighbors, um, and then basically went out, uh, got a pocket knife, uh, just because he was buying one on this on the street, went and hung out with some friends, um, at some point, lost the pocket knife, because it fell out of his pocket. Um, and then he goes to the the, the movies, uh, watches a couple movies and comes home to find his father dead. Immediately he's arrested. And when he's asked what movies he watched or who was in the movies, um, you know, anything about the movies that he watched whatsoever, he, he can't recall any details. Um, and so and and then he, later in court, he does recall the proper details. But, you know, he wasn't able to recall them a few hours after watching the movies. Um, so those are kind of like the two the two threads we get here, right? And and that's all we have to go on because we just have we just have the the stories that we're told. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and um, I guess you could obviously poke holes in the prosecution's case, um, but then there's also some questions to be asked about the defendant's case, like if it makes sense uh, that you know he would have just lost his pocket knife or he would not be able to remember what he had just watched like an hour or two before. Yeah, Yusuf, they. Um... The jurors bring up a lot of questions um, about the individual pieces of evidence and the testimonies. Do they, from a procedural perspective, do they get to ask those questions as uh, the days are progressing? Like one day, like the prosecution presents the evidence about the, um, let's say, the knife, the uniqueness of it, and the shopkeeper's testimony that it's a pretty unique knife what the jurors at that time have had the chance to bring up those questions. Because if those questions are lingering in the jurors' minds, wouldn't you think they would have brought it up earlier? Oh, so you mean just from the standpoint of, like, what, what the legal system allows for? Yeah. Um, no, not really. Like, they're not really involved in what gets presented. It, you know, each, each side kind of has to present their best case um, in the manner that they think is the best to present it. 
Um, and I think that, you know, there is some allowance for, you know, being able to ask questions or go back, but usually not in the moment like that. Um, I think, mm. and again, this, this varies a lot, uh, but, you know, there are some manners of allowing the jurors to, to go back and ask questions like when they're deliberating or things like that. But um, very limited in capacity, obviously, because they, they don't get to do it while the witness is there. They don't get to do it in the moment mm-hmm. or anything like that. Okay. Um, and, and so you, you kind of do see here where even though the case is done, all the jurors have these questions and they start kind of litigating it themselves, right? They're almost yeah. doing the investigation over that, you know, that, that if it wasn't done properly in the first place. Yeah. Um, and, and so it, it, they're, like I, I get I see that kind of conflict as well, where it's like, do we just take things at the word of the attorneys like they are the ones who know what they're doing? Um or should we be kind of like doing our own investigation here? Um, and obviously, uh, at least because Henry Fonda, um, during number eight, takes it upon himself to start that conversation, everyone then kind of gets in on the action and starts questioning everything for themselves, um, even beyond, you know, the what the defense attorney presented, which was, as far as we can tell, pretty much nothing. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, okay, so let's, let's go on to the writing, because I think a lot of the things that I said about the narrative that I found to be really good... Uh, was really held up because of good writing. And I had given it an 85 and Fahad's was very close with an 80, but Yusuf, you, you gave it a 55. You didn't, you didn't think the writing held up here? Yeah, no, I, I mean, and <laughs> I, I think that's the perfect way to put it, that it, it just didn't hold up. It didn't hold up to the test of time. I think a lot of mm. the, the conversation, there's a lot of banter um, in between actually getting to the bare bones of the case um, and I thought a lot of it was like really kind of annoying at times. Um, Enforced. Yeah, like especially I think it's juror number uh, juror number twelve who is who works at an ad agency or something, and he keeps wanting to talk about his job. And you know, I wrote this clever line <laughs> for this advertisement, and so on, right? Um, and, and like I was I was laughing at some of the stuff he said, but I was more laughing at him than like laughing <laughs> with him. Where like it's. It, you know, it just his his conversation seemed so out of place. And I don't know, kind of I felt like some of that stuff was meant to make the audience laugh. But I, I didn't actually think it was funny on its face. Um, oh. Yeah. And I I, th- I felt like a lot of that was was a bit fluffy, which is it's funny, right? For a 90 minute movie, like to say that there's like actually fluff in that 90 minutes. Um, I mean, it, this is a pretty compact story, but I just I feel like maybe they could have uh, yeah, I think if this was rewritten present day, by the way, there, there is a 1997 remake of this, which I have not seen. Um, but I, oh, I, I heard think it's you trash. probably could have done it crashed. Is that right? I, I heard it's trash. Oh, it's trash. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, same thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just feel like probably in present day, you could probably do a better and more engaging job of, of doing the writing. Um, now again, may, maybe that was great writing, um, for, for somebody in that era and I'm totally mistaken. Uh, but I just I just don't think it was it was that engaging, Pro- probably because they had to recount everything that happened in the trial. So pretty much a lot of the times they had to kind of do this, um, you know, the summarizing of what had happened uh, in the trial, what the two accounts of the story were. And that's like that's not really engaging. It's more informational. It's definitely purposeful. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, the modern equivalent of this is um, a lot of the stuff Aaron Sorkin does with his legal dramas. Right. How do you compare the writing in there versus here? Because he's received a lot of criticisms for his the way he writes. He he doesn't write his uh, characters in a very naturalistic way. They're always talking fast yeah. and shooting zingers all and over a lot the place. Of banter. 
a lot of banter, right? And a lot of fluff and a lot of sentimentalism, right? Um, so comparing the two, I don't know. I, I give it more leeway for that for the stuff that you mentioned. I was going to say, I thought the marketing agency guy was hilarious. <laughs> he, was, he was like always trying to avoid conflict, always trying to break the ice. <laughs> but there is one moment, Yusuf, where there is a lot of fluff. When juror number one decides to talk about like his football coaching stuff, uh, when it starts raining and like raining cats and dogs and stuff, um, like that entire like two minute like monologue he had was was very very random and it, I didn't really care for it. Um, I can't think of like any other scene that I was like, oh, this is fluff. I mean, there was like you know they they take an aside to you know talk about personal things here and there. But it was done like in a compact way where it didn't bother me, except for that one conversation that juror number one has about it raining outside. Yeah. And how it reminds him of a game. Right. So you're right. Like, I think fluff is probably not the best way to categorize it because they're they're putting some of that conversation in there because they want you to know the backgrounds of each of these jurors. And that's important to understand their perspectives. Right. So you need to know which ones of them are are foreigners, what types of social classes they come from, you know, what their what their occupations are. Yeah. You need to know that information. So most of that conversation is actually just to get that stuff on record. Um, I, it just it didn't feel that natural to me. But like I said, I think they just, you know, they punted on the on the writing in order to make sure that they they had all the details about each of those individuals that needed to be said at some point. So like, you know, they have those exchanges where it's like, Oh, like, you, why are you reading the newspaper? Uh, you're a uh, you're a big guy on stocks, and he's like, yes, I'm a broker, and he's like, oh, well, I uh, run a uh, a messenger service. Uh, here's my card. Like, uh, I started this business from scratch, and like, it's like, okay, like, what is this conversation? But they need to tell you, look, this guy is a stockbroker. He's he's a very logical thinker. Um, he tries not to let emotion play any role in his decision making. Right? You need to know those things about each of them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like, I can totally see why they did it, and and so I mean, I scored it down, but I. I just I understand the decision totally. That's that's kind of how I felt. And when the guys, um, the self-made guys, offering his business card, he gets like snubbed almost, right? Because <laughs> he doesn't take the card, right? Yeah, and you see the rejection on his face, and <laughs> that kind of comes up later, right? <laughs> you sense that he's bitter. Who the juror number three? Yeah, the self-made guy. Yep. I mean, I kind of I get what you're saying, Yusuf. Um, maybe didn't hold the test of time, and there was like it just wasn't presented well i see the whole idea of it kind of being forced in there and not feeling natural so and then wasn't there like a little bit where you felt like i mean they they almost did it too natural in some spots where it just didn't flow well um i i just i i kept noticing that they like while a guy is like giving an explanation of something they'd have him like pause and like somebody like half interrupt him he'd be like now hold on here let me finish i'm almost through and then like he would continue (laughs) and it was like i I just you wouldn't see that in a in a modern uh you know movie in terms of the writing right you would just have the guy kind of speak through kind of the interruption or whatever like you it's it's true that probably happens more in real life than it does in film but it's just kind of weird <laughs> in terms of watching that um but you know i think i think i'm i think i'm i'm hammering on the writing more than more than it deserves at this point let's go on to the acting mm-hmm. um here we're a lot closer i i we're i gave it a, the highest score a little above average at 80 you guys were mm-hmm. closer to average at 70 75 i think the only juror i had a real problem with was was the old guy juror number nine um <laughs> He was just a little too old timey for me. I mean, I'm sure like it fit the role and the character perfectly well, but 
you know how Yusuf, you're saying in terms of the writing, how he was like that guy who would talk really slow. Um, someone would try to interrupt him and he'd be like, no, let me finish. Uh, like It just didn't feel natural. But everyone else I thought was really good outside of maybe, maybe uh, the angry juror with the son, juror number three, when he uh, kind of breaks down at the end was a little over dramatic. Oh, for uh, sure. Other than that, I, I had like no issues really with the acting. I mean, I noticed over the top acting with with pretty much every actor in there. Um, but it, was, it wasn't it was too bad. Um, and I, I feel like it was just the style of the acting back then. You know, yeah. certain eras have a different style of acting, and that was just it for that era. So I didn't try to criticize it too much. I, I think I you guys said it perfectly. There, there's some moments that are over the top, um, and particularly during number three's breakdown was a little bit, uh, you know, Super, super it, it was not even a little it was very dramatic <laughs> but like I, I do think that the acting i mean this movie relies on the acting right so mm-hmm. like you know i gave it a slightly above average score of a 75 right so um there was definitely things that took away from it but i think really the acting kind of puts this performance together too right like that's that's what holds it together yeah. um so i don't want to i don't want to go too hard on it and th- there's actually this this movie by the way it was put together also made it very difficult on the on the actors i mean they, they had a heavy burden and i think they they held up to it pretty well um you guys notice how many long shots they had in this movie um after yeah. after kind of the introduction where you know in the courtroom once they get into the the jury deliberation room i think the next like 7 minutes or so it's all one continuous shot um and then you can clearly see where the cuts are especially because you know, in a movie like like Birdman, right, um, where they try to fool you into thinking like there's ma- way less cuts than there actually are. Um, they're not really doing that here. And they probably just didn't even have the, the technology they, they needed to do some of that. So, like, you can see clearly where the cuts are and where they're not. Um, and it's very, very obvious. They had a lot of long, long takes. The actors had to know what they were doing and coordinate and kind of, you know, even choreograph themselves outside of the 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 view of the camera to get ready for the next shot um and then you know yeah. they would pan to them so i thought like you know you have to give them credit for how much you know control they had over those elements yeah almost like a stage play where they have to kind of like stand on the side and be ready to like jump in when it's their role or when it's their time mm-hmm. all right so guys what didn't you see in terms of themes that you guys were so low? So well, Yusuf was average as or just above average at seventy five, but Fahad, you went below average on this. Yeah. So and Fraz, you're at a hundred, right? Yeah. This is what this movie is. Like, what it, is it? Is other it than though? The I mean, there's a little yeah. bit about um, what what's what's it called? Racial bias, and um, what else did you see? Well, racial bias, the entire system, the judicial system, um. The purpose of like having a jury, uh, like all, all the that themes stuff. of like, like democracy a, and stuff. Yeah, democracy was a pretty big one, especially from the uh, foreigner, the foreign juror. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, the 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 racial undertones. It was all there. The the classism that was presented. There but, was a lot. That, Basically, yeah. each individual juror had something. Masculinity was a theme in here, which would would you expect that in a 1957 movie? Like juror number three's whole deal is like, you know, he's this mainly guy who was clearly probably too aggressive with his son when uh, raising him, that his son has basically shunned him over like the past two years, and 
it's like eating away at him and he's got this anger problem so they kept i mean they kept saying yeah, go ahead. they kept saying in the movie that he was easily excitable <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm just saying like yeah. i mean is isn't that you know toxic masculinity like i don't know if that's what they were getting at that's like an excuse for it right oh he's just easily excitable but there's a lot more underneath it why is he like that i don't know if they were going for that i think their intention was to bring together a cast of like varied people so you can see it from different perspectives like they have an old guy in there they have a professional in there they have like this over-the-top guy they have this uh guy with glasses who barely talks the nerd i guess well, why would they pick these different people? It's not just like surface level, I thought. I thought it was for the thematic elements that would come with the story. Hmm. Possibly, yeah. But I, I, I didn't I didn't see too much deeper than the surface. Um, I think all of those things are there. I, I mean, it, it's just probably not the the best executed on, on the themes because, again, by the constraints of this, this one deliberation room, it's hard to to show you things in kind of a varied manner. So so they they did what they were able to in that room. And I think I think you're totally right. You're hitting on a lot of deeper things that they're trying to present here, right? Um really this movie is about prejudice, right? Um and everyone has their own brand of prejudice, right? Um Yeah. It, some of them it's like uh it's like a, a, a the typical type of prejudice you would think kind of that they have a negative um you know connotation to something about another person, whether it is the social class they come from, um, or whether you know they view them as a foreigner or or whatever, right? There, there's all those elements. There's also the people in the room who feel slighted by others, and like their prejudice is almost a, a reaction to that, right? Um, for example, the foreman, who is doing a pretty good job of keeping things in control with a bunch of you know <laughs> crazy people in this room. Like everyone <laughs> has like a different reaction, to everything, and he's doing a pretty good job keeping a lid on it. Um, but his his authority gets questioned, um, and no one else is willing to take the responsibility that he is, and and that like really gets under his skin, you know, where he's suddenly like, you know, I don't I don't feel like doing this because you know I don't get I, I only get criticism, right? Um, and and same thing goes for for a couple other characters, um, one being the 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 uh, I think he was European, right? The the foreigner um, who the watchmaker, he's a watchmaker. There you go. Yeah, he's yeah. juror number uh, eleven, and. He knows that people don't view him as an American, and he's making a particular effort to to show them how American he is. That he understands English, he knows grammar, which some of them don't. Um, you know, he <laughs> cares about you know democracy and the responsibilities that come with it. Like there, there's 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 all those different types of because that is a prejudice in a way, right? Where he's trying to make up for something, and he he's almost overreacting to it. Um, so I, I kind of I think I think that's all there. What'd you guys think about that musical cue? They had it where they showed the the defendant as the jurors are leaving the courtroom, and then they bring it up once or twice again. I think they do it at the end, and it's like that overly sentimental music. Yeah, I, I fit it to the time period. Like, yeah. it, it just fit with the movie based on knowing that it's a 1957 film. I'm, like, I, I'm not like criticizing it. I, I just thought that they were using it to sh- like kind of hint at his innocence maybe yeah because the beginning it, yeah. it is it is a little bit like sad whatever that music is it's a little yeah. bit it gives you that sense right and they you're right they bring it up once or twice and that's really the only music they have in this in this movie um so they use it two or three times and that's kind of it um i think that's probably true i mean thematically what do you, do you think that means something here 
Or do you think that's just kind of in your face? I mean, obviously they're trying to elicit like empathy, right? And it is in your face, but those are values for me as a like modern day viewer. So I don't know how audiences back then would have judged it. You know, would they have thought that it was too sentimental? I don't think so. Cause yeah. other movies of the time period, they also do it. Yeah, exactly. And if there is one criticism here for the themes, uh, it would be that they're a little in your face. Uh, there's, there's not much subtlety at all, but that also I think is perfectly fine because considering the entire narr- narrative structure of the film, uh, like if it wasn't in your face, it it might have come off as a very boring and non-engaging story. Yeah, sure. I think that I think that's right. I almost want to say that we're we're kind of glossing over a lot that they that they were trying to show us. I mean, they do a lot for just being in that room. You know what I mean? I only scored it down because I, I thought it was kind of obvious what they were going for, but. I mean, I don't know. I almost want to convince Fahad further. I don't know. Of, of what, <laughs> yeah, of what mean, category, well, though? Even, the, even at the surface level of, um, uh-huh. like, you know, they're trying to determine whether this defendant is guilty or not. Just the basic idea of, like, all right, it, sh- it should be starting. Like, what is reasonable doubt? I think the uh, watchmaker juror, he actually mentions, like, maybe you don't understand what reasonable <laughs> doubt means. Which is a very good point. A lot Does of people it, do not, right? Yeah, I, I don't think a lot of people do. And I think this movie is kind of trying to show you how each juror that eventually turns their uh, guilty vote to not guilty, it just took, you know, a one piece of evidence that created some reasonable doubt. Now, maybe they believed everything else, but it was like for... For the stockbroker, it was like, hey, maybe that uh, eyewitness from across the street, the lady wore glasses. Um, for the for the juror who grew up in the slums, he's like, how would the kid have done a a overhand stabbing motion with the switchblade? Knowing everything I know about switchblades, it would be you know underhand going up, and you know like for each juror, it was one thing that created that doubt. Yeah, and like essentially, like when you're talking about. You know whether you're going to term, determine someone is guilty or not guilty, especially for a case that is going to result in capital punishment. Like any any one thing that causes reasonable doubt should be enough. Because even like Henry Fonda, uh, he he constantly says like, "I don't know if he's innocent, but isn't it possible based on all these other little things?" And that's really all that matters. And like that's I think the very basic in your face thing. Like hey. He might be guilty, but there's still doubt here and it should be considered. And, and his point is that it's better to, to let him go if he's guilty than it is to, you know, send him to the chair if he's innocent. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He's just he's making the point that we're not going to be able to get the right call here for sure. But we need exactly. to choose the better and, you know, the less risky path in terms of in, in terms of what we're putting, um, you know, at risk. Um, which is, you know, an mm-hmm. innocent person's life potentially, right? Um, you, you bring up a really good point because, you know, that is something that they struggle with so much. The fact that, um, I guess the broader way to put this would be to say that uh, they kind of show how people struggle with uncertainty. Um, because obviously the trial itself is, is you know, the whole thing is built on whether they can come to certainty or not. Um, and as they find out, when reasonable doubt is a standard, they really don't need to be certain. They just need to be certain that they're not certain, right? Um, they, yeah. they just need to know that they don't know for sure. And that and that is enough to make their decision. And it kind of feeds into the whole thing that they show us about the different prejudices people have. Um, 
you know, especially I think it's juror number 10, um, the the racist guy, right? So juror number 10, does he does he change his mind on the basis that he had that emotional outburst or did he that they shunned him? Yeah. Or did he legitimately have reasonable doubt about the case? I, th- I think that. Yeah, his reaction is is kind of the the weirdest here, right? Because he he sees everyone, and that's one of the best scenes I think, where basically he goes on this, uh, you know, this xenophobic rant essentially, right? And uh, by the time he gets to the end of it, every single person or almost every single person has turned their face away from him or has gotten up from the table completely, and he's seen that he's like lost all the support that he had. Um, and he, I mean, he's basically being shamed for for his for his racist uh, feelings here, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know, yeah, I don't know what changes his mind. Whether it's just the shame of that, or whether he realizes that, you know, internally, I have no reason to think this guy's guilty other than, you know, the the color of his skin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my guess is the latter, there, Yusuf, that he's just realizing I'm letting my bias cloud my vision so much here that, you know, like uh, like how can I say he's as guilty when I'm not like thinking clearly about this? And, and people want to feel like they, they're able to define things. Right. And this is what I was trying to say about uncertainty where it's like, it's like he, he, he feels more comfortable if he can put those people in a box and say, I know what they are. These types of people, they're born liars. They're, you know, they're bound to become criminals. They don't feel bad killing somebody. He says all these things and he wants to be able to define a certain type of person or a a certain group of people. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not just him. Everyone kind of does this in different ways. Um, And and that makes you feel better. But if they if they don't know and if they have to admit to themselves that, you know, I can't really say for sure one way or another about one person or a group of people or or anything, I can't I can't define what happened or not or who to believe Um, that makes people feel uncomfortable. And that comes out in, in a courtroom more than anywhere else. Right. Where you feel like you have this responsibility to to determine somebody's guilt or innocence. But the answer most of the time is that all you have to determine is that you're not sure. And that is the right decision, right? So um, I thought that's kind of a broader point that they're making in a few different ways, I guess. I mean, it's not too different from uh, juror number three with the the angry one with the sun. Like, he, he just comes to the realization, right, that he's letting his pent-up rage that he has against his son, like, cloud his his thought process on this case, basically ignoring all the potential holes in the prosecution's case that has been brought up by all the other jurors. And he's just letting this one thing like block all of that out. And then he finally comes to a realization, Hey, like if I take that one thing out of, out of my uh, vision, you know, like I can see clearly that there is doubt here. Yeah, exactly. He even says at some point that like, um, you know, early on where he's like, you know, these kids nowadays, they're all like this. Um, so he, yeah. ju- he just he has it in his head that that's how they are the entire, you know, the youth. <laughs> and that that is what <laughs> makes his decision. Right. Um, so, I mean, interestingly, we only get the one shot of the the actual defendant at the beginning of the film. Right. Fahad, you mentioned with kind of that, you know, sorrowful music kind of playing over. Um, yeah. We don't, and, and, and he himself is like pretty ethnically ambiguous. I mean, it's, it's probably clear um, well, not only from that shot that he's he's, you know, not you know a white american right he's he's some sort of ethnic background or something i thought um, he was not that it matters i thought he was italian 
You thought he, yeah. Oh, so I, see, I thought it was like Puerto Rican or something. Right, oh. like exactly. Right. This is perfect because that's exactly what I thought. I was like, yeah, he could be like some sort of European. He could be South American. He could be a lot of things. Um, he could be Indian. He could be uh, he could be Middle Eastern. Like, and I think that's kind of the point where it's like it's a little bit ambiguous what he is. And at the same time, then you get into this deliberation room and and everyone's anonymous, right? We don't get any names throughout. I mean, I'll, uh, I'll preface that with we get two names eventually at the last second of the film. But you don't get any of the names of the jurors the entire film, basically. I mean, there, there's a, you could make the point that they're making a larger metaphor that like we're all one of these people. Right. Like uh, these are just these these are the 12 angry mythical men of society that everyone has to endure. Right. Um, you know, like this is, this is, uh, an encapsulation of society and, and what you have to deal with and what you have to overcome. Um, because everyone has these different ways of thinking and these different backgrounds and, and it makes it tough to, to, um, you know, to, to come to agreement on, on anything. Um, so, I mean, you could, you could make the argument they're making that broader point as a thematic element. Fahad, what do you think? Have I convinced you to give this movie a hundred? Maybe not a hundred, but uh, it's at least average. I, I right? can bump my score up by like I don't know, fifteen points to seventy-five. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, 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 I'm not, I'm not going to pressure you into changing your score. That's uh, that is ethically wrong. Uh, but you know, uh, there is a lot of stuff here, right? You can actually try to peel back the onion and say there, there's a bunch going on. Yeah, this this movie. I think one of you guys mentioned it. This movie very much feels like a play. So, how did, are you going to change it to a seventy-five? I don't know. I haven't decided yet. Are you are you are you are you unsure? Because that would be on brand for this film. So um, yeah. I'm okay I, ha- with I have some reasonable doubts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, we can move on to the aesthetics. Uh, I I give it an eighty. Again, Fahad, you went below average here. Yusuf gave it an eighty-five. Um, I thought the black and white was actually pretty well done. Um, we've done a few other black and white movies recently, Mank and The Lighthouse, and. I thought this was like better than both of them in terms of visual appeal of the aesthetics uh, with the use of shadows, with the use of light. Um, I mean, obviously, everyone in that room is smoking, so it, it just adds to the, uh, the dramatic uh, feel of the aesthetics. And like Fahad mentioned, there was some music, but it was just like those two or three moments, right? Uh-huh. Otherwise, it was just them talking. And I, I really appreciated that rawness of the of the presentation. So... I thought it was pretty good. You mentioned lighting, right? And they had a couple of scenes where when one guy's talking and he's like giving this impassioned speech, they'll adjust the lighting so it's like a narrow band of light falling just on their eyes, and the rest mm-hmm. of the far, rest of the face is somewhat darkened. I don't know if I like that look. Like it just looks cheesy. It's too much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there. Okay. So the close-ups on the face were probably the cheesiest shots. Um, they were like they were hyper dramatic because, like you said, they they have the light in a way where the the shadows are super harsh, so it just gives off that dramatic look. Um, it was a little overdone, but overall, I thought it was pretty solid. You know, my score it's based on the fact that nothing about the audio or the visuals it's going to pull you in. It's it's about the story. It's about the writing, and that's why I gave it a pretty low score. There's nothing that gets me excited by watching this movie, right? There's nothing unique being done. There's some, I would say there's some, Fahad, there's some things that I thought you would appreciate. And it's not stuff, to Uh be fair, that I caught myself. This is the kind of stuff that you catch that usually goes over my head. Um, But I I happened to to read up on 
um, a little bit of what the director was going for. Sydney Lumet or Lumet. Um, oh, okay. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Sure. Um, Go ahead. Shoot. And yeah. So like just a couple things I thought were interesting. Um, he, as you mentioned earlier, claustrophobia is is kind of a feeling that they're trying to induce in this room, right? Um, and the angrier everyone gets, the more worked up they get, the more that claustrophobia comes to a point. Um, and he used different lenses throughout the length of the movie in order to enhance uh, that claustrophobia. So the first um, the, the first, you know, third of the movie, let's say, I don't know if it's the third actually, but it's, it's just the earlier parts of the movie, he's using a, uh, a shorter focal length, um, lens. And then as the movie goes on, he, he changes gradually to longer and longer focal lengths. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically mm-hmm. what that does is, um, you, both of you are photography nerds, you know, more than I do, but the background yeah. basically closes in on the characters as you do that. So you just get a sense that the room is smaller and smaller. Um, I thought that was okay. interesting because, you know, as as kind of the tension peaks, you feel even more trapped with these other characters. You know, I think that actually holds true for even for those close up close up shots of each of the jurors. Like as uh, like when it starts in the beginning, when like someone starts talking and they're focusing on just that one juror and towards the end, like before it would like show their upper torso, like the table and above. And then towards the end, it would be literally just their chin and above, like just their face. I was so that's actually a second element too, where the first third of this movie is shot at above eye level. The second third, it, interestingly, it's broken up into three parts, almost like a play, right? Uh, so first third is above eye level. The second third is at eye level, and the last third is shot mm. from below eye level. So the ceiling okay, even okay. begins closing in on you on top of the walls. Um, I, I, oh, wow. I I really do think I really do think that had an effect because, you know, for as you keep mentioning yeah. kind of the close-ups and how awkward they were. Are you thinking mm-hmm. specifically of that one of juror number nine, <laughs> the old man? There's one that's like yeah, burned I feel into like my his head. Face, yeah, his face is the one that kind of... Uh, well, also for the stockbroker juror, because when he's about to change his mind and like he's like you know rubbing his eyes and stuff, I noticed how, how close up they were on him. Yeah, so we're both talking about you know portions of the movie that are very close to the, the end, um, which yeah. is when that claustrophobia is at its maximum by those two things, not only the the eye you know the eye level of the shot and then also um the the you know the type of lens they're using um i i guess it worked i would say i didn't notice it in real time because i don't know enough to to notice it but clearly it was having an effect on how we perceived the shot yeah no definitely and not just that fahad mm-hmm. uh yusuf also mentioned earlier on the longer takes that they had where oh, yeah yeah uh you know five to seven to maybe eight minute long takes here and there where they're just spanning the room and like you know, letting you just take it all in. I thought I thought that was pretty good. I think towards the end, there's a lot more cuts. Like the further along we go, mm-hmm. there's just a lot more cuts because people are again, like I think what Yusuf said, to get that claustrophobia feel, you would have to do like more close. And they're doing like this so shot reverse shot where like people are arguing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you, that's how you would have to do it. But I think towards the beginning, you were just basically getting a shot of the room or like three, four jurors at a time, and. uh Towards the end, you were just getting a single juror at a time. Yeah, Yusuf, I did not notice the camera angles or the focal lengths, but thanks for bringing it up. Well, either did I, buddy. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, I di- I did notice like things were getting heated, right? And I didn't know why. Well, I, I knew why because like the the crux of the movie is happening, but then I don't know how much I can attribute that to what they were doing, like with the camera work and such. I think you gotta give it some credit, man. Yeah. Give it some credit. 
Maybe I need to revise some of these scores. If you do, you have to say it on the pod so I can, if I do, when I put it up, like it's going to align with what you said. All right. For aesthetics, I'm going with the 70. For themes and motifs, I'm going with the 75. Wow. Okay. So you you and Yusuf like pretty much line up at a 75 for your individual tallies. Mine's at an 83. Okay. Okay. I think it's mainly because of the themes, right? I, I, I think the themes are... I think we talked about it the longest, too, and how how much... There, there is so much more that we can discuss. I mean, you can just keep going into right. it. Um, and then you could obviously... It's also relevant to today's world, too, where, I mean, unfortunately, the justice system hasn't really improved in many ways. Um, and, like, a lot of these same problems still exist today. Yeah, and I think it's partially that our, our mindset is, you know, as a society, maybe similar right where i, I yeah. think the justice system still is endeavoring to you know be an enforcer essentially right um and of course that is kind of the role that it has to play but you know kind of that needs to come with a a, a sense of humility where you know you're not going to be able to get the right result all the time and you need to make sure that you are erring on the right side of that. Right. Um, and we don't do that enough. I mean, I think even now, if you, if have you guys, have you guys had to do jury duty? I'm just curious. Um, I went through jury selection and they were very particular about, um, seeing if you had any bias. Right. So I, right. I had a case where it was the FBI versus uh defendant. Um, they had asked me if I had any bias against either one of the, you know, the, defendant which no i didn't but the fbi i kind of wanted to get out of jury duty so i made up <laughs> i made up something about having a bias against the fbi and they got me out of there wow there you go that's all that's wow. all you have to do avoiding your civic duty <laughs> hmm? what avoiding your civic avoiding duty. my duty i mean yeah <laughs> yeah for us have you have you have you been on jury yeah, I've been on a jury. Um, it was a uh, what is it called when it's, it's a civil case? Okay. Um, uh, where it was like a a patient and and and, and a doctor. And did you did defendant. you actually go through with the case? Like, did you have to? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a two week case. It was pretty long. It was like a my su- last summer, like after undergrad, before I started working. So I actually enjoyed it because I mean I was sitting at home probably watching movies otherwise. what was the jury selection process like for you it was long it was pretty much the pretty much all day and i was one of the last ones um i do remember a lot of people that were in front of me that were being questioned by the lawyers a lot of them were using you know the healthcare system um as a potential bias like how they're you know was one dude was straight up like oh i hate obamacare uh, this like other people were like yeah, I don't trust insurance companies or I don't know. They would just say something like that and uh, the lawyers would pretty much dismiss them. Um, yeah, no. So that's so I eventually my turn came up and I, I really didn't have I don't want to make up a bias okay. to avoid it. So I got selected. So I, I guess the reason I ask and I, I've never been on a jury, by the way, um, but I just get the sense that you know the, the mindset going into jury is, is still the same where you're like, all right, we're going to figure this one out guys right um but a lot of times the answer is you you can't figure it out um and and you don't have to but kind of in in our minds our our duty feels like it is to to be that decision maker to be the you know as juror number three puts it the executioner right he sees himself as the executioner um so like i feel i feel like that is the the mindset a lot of times um so it's kind of difficult to overcome i I don't know i don't know that's going to change in a system where you know we view ourselves as 
capable of being judges of other humans, right? Like that's just, that's how it's going to be. Um, but that is uh, getting a little more political and less uh, on topic with this film. <laughs> Did you guys have anything else to discuss here? There's one thing I noticed. Uh, Henry Fonda, juror number eight, the one who is the first one to say maybe he's not guilty. Um, he's like wearing a nice clean white suit, whereas everyone else is either wearing black or gray, uh, nothing lighter. Um, I don't know, just him wearing the white suit being like, I don't know, the angel in the room. Mm. <laughs> Saving the guy's life. It reminds me of another talkie movie, kind of like this. It's um, the characters' names were literally white and black, and one guy was white and one guy was black. <laughs> okay, what was the name of the? Oh, the title of the movie was that, or that was the, the character. Those were names? the characters' names. They never mentioned their names. The title of the movie was The Sunset Limited. It's based off a Cormac mm-hmm. McCarthy uh, play, and uh, I think it just made it made it onto HBO. It wasn't. Okay. Wait. So they're 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 actually like credited as white and black. Yeah. AKA the color of their skins. Yeah. Google it real fast. <laughs> oh my god. But it played into like their overall views. Okay, I see. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess they they and they do that here too, right? Where they're they're kind of everyone is kind of an archetype of you know some type of person in society, um, mm-hmm. and you know they're it's. That that's like what we were talking about with the themes, right? There, they could be anyone. They just it's it's a specific viewpoint they're showing you, so they leave it kind of anonymous, so you can you can fill that role, or someone you know can fill that role, or just a, a, an arm of society fills that role, right? So they're they're kind of making a broader point. Um, I assume that's kind of similarly what they're probably getting at when they do that in in um in in this film that you're mentioning. Yeah, they definitely do. Did you guys um did you guys notice the whole thing with the fan? And how like none of them can get it to work, and then suddenly it just starts like what were they trying to do? Where it just like suddenly starts working? Was there like some sort of message there that I was missing? I don't know. I, I thought it was literally the the light switch. So when when it starts raining, it gets cloudy. The guy turns on the lights in the in the room, and I think that switch also uh, is connected to the fans. So now the fans but, power supply. But you're out. asking, does it indicate anything more? Like, is there symbolism? Behind yeah, that's it? what I'm asking. Is there some sort of symbolism in the fact that, like, you know, multiple people try to make it work and they keep mentioning how we can't get it to work, we can't get it to work, and then finally it works and they're like, oh, yeah, like, it must have been on the same switch and whatever. Uh, but it, Because the light goes off, literally, it goes off in their head that maybe he's not guilty. <laughs> <laughs> who, who gets it uh, working? It's Is it the sports guy, the guy that has the tickets? Because he's... Yeah, okay. yeah, it's him. It's him. Does he decide right then that does he change his mind near that moment? I don't think so. Okay. Oh, maybe. Maybe soon thereafter. Because the fan starts working like during this break that they're taking because things are just a little heated. Yeah. I mean, it, it does act as a diffuser, right? Um, because, yeah. the, you know, <laughs> quite literally, the cooler heads prevail eventually um, as they, you know, the first the rain starts and that kind of obviously brings the temperature down probably, right? And then they get the fan working and things just the you know the tension in the room starts to evaporate um so i mean maybe that's what they're they're getting at and it, it you know it, it doesn't have to be more symbolic than that other than the fact that like you know the tensions you know everyone everyone is under stress and that stress can cause you to make poor decisions um but you know as that alleviates they're able to to do the right thing essentially yeah yeah exactly it's you could say it's like the turning point of the movie where people will start to let their cooler heads prevail right and then, like, also, we so you know, basically, you know, we don't we don't actually even get to see the end of the trial where they, you know, proclaim this person 
guilty or not guilty, but you know, obviously based on the way the the jury deliberations end, you you pretty much know that he's not guilty. Um, so that leaves the question: yeah. Who killed the dad? <laughs> There's a possibility he still killed him, but the jury just came out not guilty. Yeah, yeah, very good point. I, I was always wondering that, like you know, like if it wasn't like if they were gonna bring that up during the deliberation, like well, if it wasn't his son, then who would have just come in and done something like this? Like, right? The defense would have theoretically provided a ulterior explanation right? right like some sort of alternate suspect or something right just to give you something yeah. and that's again that's kind of playing on the biases of people where they want to say okay if not him then who and mm-hmm. if the answer is i don't know we have no idea who it was but it wasn't him that's like not good enough for people a lot of the time so um yeah but interestingly they don't give you any sense of what actually happened whether he's whether he actually killed his dad or not and if he didn't who did uh we don't know and it's almost imp- probable that somebody walked into his house with the same knife and and killed his dad and then wiped the fingerprints away and yeah. then I was, ran away right i was gonna <laughs> say because of the fingerprints and what i've seen of like crime dramas i know that the main assumption with wiping fingerprints and leaving a no evidence it's it's that with no evidence you're looking into premeditate premeditated uh murder right it's not a crime of passion so it, it kind of eliminates certain um, certain candidates for uh, yeah certain candidates. Um, yeah, and it, and it's also it also it also makes it less of a less of a random like if it was a ra- random robbery uh-huh. um, and this guy's just on the run, he's probably not really concerned as much with his fingerprints as he would be if it was the son who is obviously going to be looked at very hard, right? Um, yeah. So. Yeah, but I mean, again, they they just don't give you anything there, and it could it could easily be the son. Yeah, yeah, but the whole idea—he cleaned the fingerprints, but left the knife there. But he looked. Yeah, that's true. Why would he leave the knife then? Right. That's, that's so maybe very odd. maybe it was gloves that prevented the fingerprints from getting on the knife. Yeah, it was probably. Or maybe that. he's being framed. All true. things to think about, guys. He looked very innocent <laughs> in the one shot we have of him. I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, can we just can we just finish by talking about uh, the 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 last scene where we get uh, we get uh, juror number eight and juror number nine meeting out on the street? Um, and he I says, "I hated that scene." <laughs> I think that was just an excuse to give like a name to uh, juror number eight for us. Yeah, probably right. It was just an awkward scene. Davis. My name's McCardle. Well, so long. So long. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Go ahead, Bob. Yeah, they exchange names and then they're like, so long. It's like, <laughs> yeah, well, well, so long. <laughs> <laughs> why even introduce yourself at that point? I think for the movie, it was like the old guy expressing gratitude that the uh, white suit guy, you know, started the, uh, the, uh, the conversation. conversation, the um, because it takes bravery to be like the lone voice, right? And that's what he was appreciative of, appreciative of, and that's why he approached him towards the end. Um, yeah, yeah, just to be kind of like, hey, pretty awesome what we did in there, huh? Yeah, yeah, we killed it, huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he wanted some credit. He wanted to make a friend, Davis and uh, McArdle or whatever. Yeah, there, there is going to be a sequel with them too. What the fourteen angry men? 
<laughs> two angry men and ten other men. Okay, that's that's the I've decided that's the name of the sequel. Okay, it's just them two. I don't know on another jury. All right, that's good nonsense to fade right, out on. <laughs> yeah, we're good. All right, everyone, thanks for listening. Peace. Thanks for listening to this production of the Twice Over. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing and sharing it with a friend. Want to see what your tally is? Check out thetwiceover.com. All the movies we've done are listed there, as well as what we're watching for the current week. Follow us at The Twice Over on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, where you can leave us any suggestions, feedback, or comments. And if you're about it, you can also support us on Patreon. The music you hear on this podcast is from Amerigo Gazaway. You can find his work on Bandcamp and Spotify.